I want to read your Twitter bio because this is where we started from. And this is how you and I met. I quit my nine to five to buy self-storage properties. Two years in, $8.1 million acquired, eight properties, 170,000 square foot and growing. Dude, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. <laughs> hey, Brian. <laughs> How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. Good to talk with you. Dude, I'm just, I'm excited to be your buddy just with the name Baird. Like, I feel like you can't fail with a name like that. That's a stout, stout name. It's pretty strong. It's a, it's a Scottish sur- surname. It was my grandmother's last name. And uh, yeah, my parents decided to give it to me as a first. And since it's a Scottish surname, it comes with a, with its own tartan. And I've got a Baird tartan kilt that I pull out for special occasions. So. There you go. I am upset that you're not wearing it right now, but it's okay. We can yeah. move past that. Yeah, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know, but I'm not. I'm wearing it. <laughs> All right. So, dude, we just talked a little bit, and it, we are about to have an awesome podcast interview. We're going to go through a couple of different stages of your journey that are going to be really beneficial for the listener, both the entrepreneur that's listening. Affectionately, guys, we're not making fun of you. The entrepreneurs, people that are listening to all the podcasts over and over again, and they can't figure out to t- how to take the jump. And also, we're going to benefit the entrepreneurs that are becoming slaves to their business. And they're not running their business. Their business is running them. So Baird's got some really interesting perspective on all angles for this. But for to begin, I want to read your Twitter bio because this is where we started from. And this is how you and I met. I quit my nine to five to buy self-storage properties. Two years in, $8.1 million acquired, eight properties, 170,000 square foot and growing. Dude, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> let's rock, let's walk back to corporate Baird. You said that you were working for a pretty long time in corporate America and you couldn't figure out how to make the leap, take the jump, and you were a chronic entrepreneur. What was going on and what changed to help you make the leap? Yeah, I I can definitely relate to the entrepreneurs in the audience. I was a entrepreneur for 16 years. I was in in financial technology, business development, led sales teams for 16 years. And honestly, I was just, I was never satisfied with it. I didn't love the nine to five. I enjoyed sales, but just never felt like I was doing what I was meant to do. That career took me to London. I uh, was recruited by a London-based company in the field that I've been in in the States forever. And they moved me and my family to to London. We lived there for for three years wrapped that job up at at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, and took a little bit of time. It was a weird time to try to move back to the States because of the pandemic. We lived in Scotland for four months of the summer, finally made our way back to the States. And I was at a, I I don't know, it might've been like a midlife crisis at that point. I was 38 years old, had spent 16 years in financial technology and the corporate slog was knew that I didn't want to continue that path. And like many of your listeners, I was desperately listening to podcasts to try to figure out what was next. And over that time in Scotland, I got really interested in acquisition entrepreneurship. Like I thought, 
you know, I like this concept of buying an existing business, financing it with the cash flows of that business and then growing it. But I wasn't really that interested in buying a, a typical small business. Like when I thought about the day-to-day of running a, a typical small business, it wasn't that inspiring. So I listened to my first million, as I'm sure many of your listeners do. And I heard Nick Huber in November of 2020 tell his story of buying self-storage properties, primarily in the Southeast and Northeast. And I remember I was on a mountain bike ride at the time. And I just thought like, I could do this. This is something that I could do. I like that it's, it seemed pretty operationally simple, seemed like a great way to put the capital that I had collected to, to work. I've now learned that it's not all that operationally simple. It's actually much more involved. It's more of a small business than a real estate asset, but it has now become a fairly passive business for me. So I made the leap and just I listened to that podcast and went straight to work. I didn't think much about it. I literally the next day put together a list of all the storage facilities within about an hour's drive of where I live. And, and I sent them a letter and I now own four of the properties that were on that initial list of about 50 letters that I sent. And for your yeah, listeners, that's, that's not a normal. That's not a normal hit rate. <laughs> no, but that's awesome, and I think that's I think that's important to highlight because that's how it was for me too. And there's two nuggets I want to pull out of that. One of the nuggets is the concepts of light work versus heavy work. So we've done a couple podcasts on that, but there's this whole concept of how does work, how do different types of work make you feel? Like it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it's necessarily simple or easy or hard or difficult. It just means, do you spring up to do the thing or does it take you forever? And is it like dragging an anchor behind you? So like for me with my single family rental properties, me fixing a hole in a fence and calling the property manager or calling a contractor to fix a hole in a fence is going to probably take a month or two mm-hmm. for me to even consider doing it because it feels so heavy to me. But me hopping up out of bed to make content for 20 hours straight, I'm like, oh, heck yeah. So I think it's important whenever you feel that and you, whenever you feel that calling to take action, you just you do it immediately. And I think that's really important because whenever you find your thing, like your asset class, that's how it's going to feel. You know, yep. now before yep. this, had you tried anything else or like any other like real estate investing or anything besides this or? Yeah, I I hadn't done any real estate investing, but I had a couple of side projects to start like little technology companies. I, I did some angel investing, like I exercised some of my entrepreneur tendencies through yeah. investing in others that were, were building companies, but never fully took the leap. And I was honestly, I was lucky in that I had a gap in my career where I could take some time off and create a bit of open space to figure out what was next. And I was just, I feel really lucky that storage dropped into my lap as, as the, as the place to go. Do you think never, that you would have, do you think you would have done it if you didn't have that mar- if you didn't have that margin? To be honest, no, like I, I'm a very risk averse person. I think from a very early age, I've been conditioned to, to play, play it very conservative financially. And when I came out and actually it's a good story in that I expected to come home from London retired. Like I was promised a life-changing exit with that journey that never panned out. The wow. pandemic, the pandemic changed that. Luckily, I had saved a bunch to that point. I was on that. I was on that fire wagon. I had, I was living really frugally, saving as much as I could. I had some nice financial events along the the line um, that allowed me to build that savings account. But I thought that savings account was going to get me to retirement. I was thinking four percent rule. 
all I got to get to is X millions of dollars to generate X hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in passive income with the 4% rule. And I, I didn't hit, I came home without that number. Like I didn't have the number that I needed to retire. So it forced me to figure out what was next. And I think I'm way happier today doing the work that I'm doing than if I were retired, living as slim as I could on, on that, that 4% rule. Dude, that's, that's my hangup, man, because I have a, I have a, an interesting relationship with the fire community, to say the least, because I don't think retirement was ever the answer. <clears throat> I think the answer was doing, being able to earn the right to do the work that you want to do with who you want to do the work with when you want to do it. <clears throat> so what that looks like for me is if I want to go work on a, if I want to go golf on a Thursday, I get to go golf on a Thursday. Like I just got back from the gym for people that are listening. I'm wearing like a little, like a gym shirt, like a tank top, because I can do that in the middle of the day. But sometimes also it's a Sunday and I want to work. But it's, you work when you want to work. I'm flying back home to Atlanta on Friday. I'm taking all of Friday off to go see my family that I haven't seen since like Thanksgiving. I think that's the answer is figuring out what work you want to work on and what's fulfilling to you, right? What's fun? I tweeted about this recently, actually. It was, I think it was a Thursday. It was a powder day. I live near a ski area. One of my favorite thing to do in the winter is ski. It had snowed a bunch on, on Wednesday night. Thursday was a powder, powder day. And I woke up and I had the choice. I could come to work or I could go ski. Many Thursdays this winter, I chose to ski. But that Thursday, I woke up and I was like, you know what? I just feel like working today. And that was like, I had that realization of, wow, I've, I've made it. Like I found this work that I enjoy enough to, to choose over skiing. Now, like I, I don't want to go too far that way and become a workaholic where I, I ignore my, my passions to, to work. But I think it is a great indication that I'm working on what I should be in that I make choices like that occasionally. I think it's a I think it's a cool example of another concept we talk about, which is navigation versus acceleration, where you teeter totter between these two different stages of life seasons. Like you go in and out of seasons where you're mashing the gas and then you take some time off and you're like you reassess. And then you mash the gas and then you reassess. So it's like you had that margin, you had that air, space of margin for you to be able to make the decision to make the pivot. Where if you had just been redlining and mashing the gas over and over again, you wouldn't have had that space to even have the hear the podcast and really implement that podcast. And so I think that's super important because I was traveling around and I was in Brazil and I was in that, you know, that reassess stage. And then all of a sudden the idea came to create the Action Academy Mastermind, the community behind this, where now my passion, my goal is to help 1 million people leave corporate America to go do work that they get fulfilled by, to build their own businesses around their life, not their life around their business. And so then I was just like a madman. I was sitting on the beach in Brazil and all I'm thinking about, I'm walking across Copacabana, man. And I'm just in my AirPods, just like listening to business podcasts and my first million. I'm like, dude, I got to get, I got to execute. It's time. I literally got in a plane and I flew home. I was like, it's time to get to work. <laughs> Let's go. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, kindred spirits there, man. So walk me through the first couple of acquisitions. So you send out some physical mailers to get the properties to get in touch with the owners. Walk me through the acquisition process for these properties. Yeah. So I, facilities. Uh, yeah. So I, I, 
first, there was a bunch of work that went into building the list of folks to reach out to. Like I, I make it sound like it was something that just happened really quickly. It did happen over a couple of days, but it was a grueling couple of days of like super tedious work of searching Google in a specific town and identifying all the storage properties, then moving that information manually from Google into a Google Sheet spreadsheet um, to build the list and then printing all those letters, signing them individually, hand addressing them. So that that took at least a couple of days. And I, I dropped the envelopes in the mailbox and I was like, I actually felt like embarrassed. I was like, what am I doing? What I'm such an imposter. Like, who am I thinking that I can just go and send send these letters to these folks and they're going to sell me their storage properties? But sure enough, uh, probably a week later, like as soon as those hopes landed, I got a call from the owner of the property that I ended up buying first. So this was December of, I sent the letters in at the end of November of 2020, got a call back in December of 2020. Have really had no idea how to how to evaluate the storage property, whether or not it was a good deal. The owner had a price in mind. I did my best to run the numbers. I, I then I reached out to Nick Huber, paid him for some consulting. He looked at the deal with me, and it worked out. Like it, the numbers worked, and he I remember on that call he said, "This deal is going to add a million dollars to your net worth within eight months." And sure enough, it has. It's well worth far more than a million dollars more than I bought it for two years ago. Bought that property in February of 21. In December, uh, before I think as I was going under contract on that first property, I got my second call back from from another owner that I had mailed the letter to. Started negotiating with them, got that one under contract, ended up closing it in April, and then two more later that year from that that first mailing. One guy sat on my six months and finally called me back after about six months, and we negotiated for a little bit and ended up closing on that one in August. And actually, the one in that I closed in, in on in December of 21, that one, I sent the guy a letter. Uh, he didn't call me back within 30 days. And I just really wanted the property. It was like, it was just a perfectly crappy property. Like I, I use that word on Twitter to describe the types of properties I buy. It was clearly very mismanaged, but in a great location, great spot. So I just tracked down his phone number on Google. I remember speaking with him right around Christmas time of 2020 and, uh, he had a higher number than I was willing to pay. I kept in touch with him through the year, finally came to agreement with him on, on a number and closed on it a year later. So a year after I first started talking to him, I closed in December of 21. Dude, that's awesome. And a key highlight that I want to I want to spotlight there in that entire process is first you led with massive levels of action. So you didn't go and you didn't go ask your friends. You didn't go ask your family, hey, is this a good idea? Is this a good idea? I'm thinking about investing in self-storage. You didn't go Google, hey, is self-storage a good asset class? You're like, no, I heard this guy talk about self-storage and I've decided, hey, come hell or high water, I'm going to take a crack at this. Maybe I get a self-storage facility. I hate it. I sell it. Cool. This is what I'm doing. And you just did the thing. And then you just took action on it. And then when it came crunch time and you started freaking out because what does everyone do that's listening to this podcast? Why are they not doing this? Because then what if you do get a deal and you're like, I don't know if this is a good deal. How do I yeah. use other people's money? How do I use, how do I know if my if I'm going to lose my money or anybody else's money? And like, how do I know it's a good deal? That's why we do the work today, ladies and gentlemen, that we talk about where you are in the communities with people that are doing these deals. Like you're with those people, you're building your network, you're building your community. You had Nick to reach out to. Nick's been on this podcast for people that are new to the show. You can go back. I'll put his episode in the show description. 
you went out to him and you're like, hey, you've done this thing. Let me pay you for this. I'll pay you for an hour or two to look over this property. And then yeah. there is no more emotion to it. Like, it's done. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I freaking I love that. I think that's one of, one of my advantages. And one of, one of the things that has made me successful is that I didn't overthink it early. You're right. I didn't talk a whole lot to my friends about what I was planning on because frankly, I was a bit, I was embarrassed by it. When you're, I was at a pretty high level in my career. I was at an, at an executive, like a C level towards the end of my career. And I was pretty self-conscious about the optics of a C-level fintech executive transitioning to buying storage. Like I was embarrassed by it. And sure. I'm embarrassed to say now that I was embarrassed because now I realize that I should have been proud. <laughs> and, and so I didn't talk to many of my friends about it, but uh, I do have some friends in real estate. And I remember a conversation with one of those friends who owns like six single family rentals. And I described for him what I was trying to do. And I remember him saying, these people aren't going to sell you their storage properties. Like they, they know what they've got. They're not going to sell. You're wasting your time. And now I own eight self-storage properties. Yeah. <laughs> I'm contract on my ninth. I'll have nine at the end of this month. Yeah. And how, um, I'm, I'm and how many did... I'm glad, I didn't, I'm glad I didn't listen how, to the doubters. Yeah. How many does he own? <laughs> six, six single family rentals. Which, yeah, so he, yeah. So he owns zero self-storage. Good for him. No, he's been successful in his own right, and he should be really proud of what he's accomplished. But um, I'm pretty happy with where I am. Yeah. And what's interesting is we all have that kind of imposter syndrome, and we all say the same thing. We're like, if it's a good deal, why would somebody want to sell it? But then you get to a point in your investing career where you're on the other side of the table, and all of a sudden you get it. Like for me, I've got two properties in Atlanta, Georgia right now. And if you're listening to this podcast in Atlanta, don't try to buy my properties. I'm not going to sell them to you. Yet, maybe. I don't know. Maybe reach out. Give me an offer. But I've got, I, yeah, I've got two co-living properties and I'm about to have to go to Atlanta. I'm evicting one of the tenants and moving. I'm going to have to fix up the property. She's been there for three years. It's They haven't trashed the place, but she just stopped paying and she's like, eat my security deposit. I'm out of here. And I was like, all right, cool. Get scram, go. So I have to fly to Atlanta and I have to walk my properties, do some CapEx and stuff. And then I've got a vacant property now that I've got to rent out. And so like, I'm all in on this podcast and building my media company. I don't want to focus on my real estate. Even though like fully rented out, those things cash flow $1,600 net each per property. That's an awesome cash flow number. So somebody that's listening to this maybe have that same limiting belief where they're like, but why would Brian want to sell his properties? But now I'm like, dude, like I may be open to it just because it's a headache that I don't want to deal with. Like on to other stuff, which I know that you like, we can get into that with you as well, where you're just, you enter different seasons. I don't want to do single family anymore. Like the next properties I buy are going to be like large deals and I'm going to do them with other people because it's just not worth my time to do a single family property anymore. So, but it was a great, it was a great place to start. I'm, I'm exactly. In same, I'm in that same position too. And that. Uh, properties two through four were all smaller properties yeah. in my world. A decent size, pro like my average properties, twenty to thirty thousand square feet, and I've got four that are like ten to twelve thousand square feet. And they're yeah. they're small. I'd consider them sort of starter properties, but they buying those uh, really helped me understand the business. They're worth a whole lot more now than than they they were when I bought them. They've been a great learning opportunity, but I think they've also been a, a great wealth wealth creation opportunity as well. And to your point, I'm actually thinking about selling. <laughs> yeah. 
if you ask how many people have reached out to me directly to buy any of my properties, it's like uh, I could count on on one hand. Oh man, it's, uh, yeah, it's there's not as much. I don't know. There's there are a lot of people out there like me trying to buy self storage, but. I don't know, as an owner myself with eight of these things under my belt, I'm surprised by how little I'm contacted by people to to buy my properties. I'll tell you what, man, when this podcast airs, well, before the podcast airs, I've got some operators that may be worth getting in touch with you with the Action Academy community that are actively looking for self-storage properties. Guys, if you're listening, hey, I appreciate all of you, but if you're not in the community, you're not getting first dibs. <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, I like to buy <laughs> off market, and, uh, and if I sell, I'll probably sell on market. So they'll have they'll see it on Crexy and Loopnet. <laughs> you're not gonna, uh, oh, dude, yeah, yeah. you're not going to sell or finance it? <laughs> no way. Oh God. Yeah, so that, let's go into that. Let's go into that. How did you finance these properties? Yeah, a mix of bank financing and seller financing. I've done two deals where the seller carried the note. The other six deals were all bank financed. My first deal, I just uh, I started reaching out to local banks. I got a, I was actually introduced. Referrals are amazing, so I was referred to an attorney who's now like an amazing an amazing friend. Um, I was referred to an attorney by a friend. He was on the board of a bank. He introduced me to the commercial lender at that bank, and they somehow took a chance that uh, this fintech sales guy could knew what he was doing and running a self storage property. So they loaned me seventy five percent of the purchase price on that property. It was a one point one million purchase. So I brought was it two seventy five of my own money, and then they they loaned me what was it like eight eight nine hundred k, and and then the second. And third properties, I actually, the second property I did with the same bank, conventional loan, 25% down on that one. And then for the third and fourth, I discovered SBA loans. So the SBA loans allow you to lever a bit more. So rather than bringing 25% down, I brought 15% down on those. Uh, and, and then even had an SBA 7A deal, which was my sixth property where the bank cut me a really sweet deal and allowed me to only bring 10% down on, on that. And then seller finance deals, actually my fifth property that I bought, uh, the seller would not sell it unless he could carry the note. It was a requirement of his. He didn't want mm -hmm. to take the capital gains hit all up, up front and, and was interested in earning some of that interest income. So he set the terms on the seller financing and then as it's an amazing deal now in, in retrospect, it's a 20, 26 year AM at, at four and a half percent. I brought 25% down on that. So it's fixed for 10 years. I've got a balloon in, in, in I guess, nine years now. So That's, why would so from the selling perspective, why would you want, what's the benefit of you as a seller selling on market? Uh, selling on market is just more eyes on the deal. The opportunity to make sure that everybody out there that's interested in your in your property has an opportunity to bid on it. Whereas if it's off market and you're selling to to a limited number of eyes, um, you're, you can't be sure that that you're getting you're maximizing. By putting it on market, you find people like people that are looking for a 1031 opportunity that might be willing to pay a premium just to avoid taxes if they're in a tough position getting towards the end of their identification period. So that's, yeah, I think just the getting getting a larger number of eyes on the deal and hopefully getting it bid up a bit more. Dude, right now, if you're a wholesaler or an off-market <laughs> investor, like five-star rating and a review for Action Academy because you guys are salivating at both of us right now. <laughs> like, this is y'all's episode. <laughs> so let's go back a bit. So we talked about the financing. 
when you're underwriting a self-storage facility, what are some red flags that you look for? And what are some green flags you look for? What are the parameters and levers that you look for in a perfectly crappy property? Yeah, so I... I look for properties that are mismanaged or undermanaged, which is pretty common in self-storage. You find a lot of older owners that either built or bought the properties many years ago, don't have any debt. They're just happy making what they're making. So I look for properties that have below market rents and very little investment in, in marketing and very little sophistication in operations. So most of the time, like my best deals are properties that were run on pen and paper didn't mm. accept electronic payments. Like I've bought multiple properties where they were ca- cash and check businesses only. And I've banned paper payments completely. No no website, very little investment in, in Google profile. Uh, so just looking for those businesses where I have, or those properties where I have the ability to add value by running a better business. And that's what I've come to discover that I really love about storage is that it's really a small business that is attached to a real estate asset. Packages real estate. The opportunity to add value through business improvements, like operational improvements is incredible. So like I look at myself now as a, I'm a remodeler of businesses. And that's like, you talked earlier about like those things that get you really excited to get out of bed. It's, it might sound strange, but I love fixing up businesses. Like I love taking a business that has Mm -hmm. no website, has a terrible Google profile, doesn't accept electronic payments, has terrible customer service. And I love like building a a nice website, implementing management software, automating operations. And I've got an amazing remote service team that's based in Latin America, but provides incredible customer service, like far better than you'd expect from a storage facility. And that's what, and then you see the tangible results of that work in my revenue and net income graphs just skyrocketing within 90 days of acquiring a a new property. That's awesome, man. And I feel you because the irony is I run real estate podcasts, which is now transitioning into real estate and entrepreneurship. But I don't really like real estate that much. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just this has been so much fun, man. Like because like I I had to look myself in the mirror one day and just ask because the thought crosses my mind all the time because I interview like the best and the brightest of everything and I'm like best friends with everyone that's like the guy or the girl in any asset class. And I'm like, dude, if I wanted to make ten million dollars in Airbnb, I could figure it out really fast. If I like, I have the Nick Cubers in my corner, right? Or like self storage, multifamily. And I was like, why don't I do it? Like, why don't I? And I was like, because this is just so freaking fun growing this podcast and building my own business and building the mastermind. It's, dude, it's so much freaking fun. I mess up left and right, and it's a blast. I'm having a, the time of my life doing it, and I'm working 100 hours a week. It's awesome. Yeah. I think, I don't know, financial money makes things easier, right? Yeah. But I think there is a, there's a certain point where money becomes... Uh, less important than than satisfaction. You have less material use for it. Yeah, yeah. I want to be filthy rich. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not willing to sacrifice my, my lifestyle to to get there. And actually, I've I've asked, I've, I've pondered this question frequently. So I've done all my deals with my own money. That's it's limiting in a way, in that I I only have so much capital that I can deploy. Uh, I could go much bigger. I could scale much bigger if I decided to take other people's money. But to me, I just have not, I haven't figured out that that would allow me to maintain the lifestyle that I live today. I'm taking my family to 
the United Kingdom for four weeks in May and June. We're like mountain biking around the country for four weeks, staying in castles, uh, eating in pubs. Uh, and I'm not sure that I'd be comfortable like disconnecting at that level if I was managing other people's money. Whereas when it's just mine and I'm the only guy that I report to, I have the flexibility to take that time off. So I could be much richer if I were running a private equity business, raising raising outside capital and really scaling this. But that doesn't really get me in my gut. That doesn't yeah. sound like something I'd be real happy doing. And maybe it's not your season right now. <clears throat> it's not your season yet. Maybe in another season, you're like, ah, oh, I'll try. I'll give it a shot. Yeah. Have you heard the story yeah. about the Mexican? Have you heard the story of the Mexican fisherman? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so for those that are listening, I'll paraphrase it. You basically have this Me- Mexican fisherman in a small coastal town. Like he's going and fishing, bringing it back. And then this businessman from America comes and he's like, hey, you could scale this operation up and you can make this an entire a massive operation with all these different boats. I could finance it. You could build millions and millions of dollars and then you could move into the America and then you could one day have so much money that you could retire. And then he's yeah, like, then what would fish, I do? You want. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, then what you would do? And then he's like, I'll come back and I would do exactly what I'm doing right now. <laughs> Yay. Congratulations. You made it. I love that, man. So let's talk about operational efficiencies. You were telling me before we started recording that you started to become a slave to your business. You were answering the calls. You were doing all the stuff yourself. Walk me through that transition from operating these self-storage facilities yourself to kind of transition into this Latin America talent and how you've gone about this in this new business that you're looking at. Yeah. So early on in my business, I was the guy answering phones. So when I had most of my properties, when I bought them, the prior owner was self-managing. And, and so I, at that point, I didn't have enough scale to hire somebody else to do it. And I also realized that I didn't know how to run a self-storage business. And I figured the best way to, to learn how to run self-storage is to do it. So early on for the first few months, I, I was the guy answering the phones. I, had, I found people local because mostly the facilities I own are outside of an hour or two away from me. So I found people local to do all the on-site stuff, but I was the guy answering the phones, renting units, taking payments, providing customer service. It was a great experience to learn, but I realized pretty quickly that was not what I wanted to spend my time doing. I was a very, I don't know whether I was overpaid or underpaid as a self-storage manager, but I knew I didn't want to do that forever. I won't go into the details of all the iterations of my management model because I've made a bunch of mistakes. I've had a a bunch of different, like anything from, I employed my sister-in-law for a while and paid her way too much money to manage my properties. But I've through all of that, I'm finally now at a point where I've got an amazing remote management model. So I have two full-time employees in Venezuela, one in Mexico. They answer the phones seven days a week from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. during our local time. And, and then one of those, one of those folks in, in Venezuela is my operations manager. And she's basically become the CEO of my storage business. And she runs the day-to-day operations completely and only comes to me now when, when there's something that she needs approval for. So I was telling you that my wife and I went to Spain, um, last week or the week before for 10 days, left our kids with, uh, with their grandmothers and, um, I could just completely disconnect it. I told my ops manager, if uh, if anything really urgent comes up, give me a call. Otherwise, I'm going to be offline. And uh, she gave, she called me once and she explained that a part-time customer service agent that we had on the team wasn't working out. I was having some personal issues and I needed to move on. And she basically presented me this plan to move that employee on and, and backfill the role. 
And I said, okay, go. She just needed me to say yes. I said, go. When I returned, we have a brand new part-time employee in, in Mexico who's amazing. Like she's, she's very underutilized at this point. Like I'm already thinking, how do we tap into her skill set more? <clears throat> it's like a pretty proud moment for me that my team did that work to hire an employee without my involvement at all. I didn't interview her. I was completely uninvolved. And turns out she was an amazing hire that, that I expect that will take full time. Dude, that's... <clears throat> Sorry. That's awesome, man. How did you originally go about finding remote talent? Slash, can you give advice for people that are hearing about virtual assistants maybe in the Philippines, but they haven't really thought about Venezuela, Latin America. How do you go about that? How do you go about a remote hiring process? What are you yeah, looking so, for through your hiring? Yeah, really good questions. I actually originally tried to hire in the Philippines. I hired, I went through two failed hires in, in the Philippines. Both were challenged by a time difference. Over there, if you're asking folks in the Philippines to work during US business hours, it's during the middle of the night, their time. And I had two employees that, that slept on the job and, and it just didn't work out. So I, I started looking in Latin America just based on that failure in the Philippines. And I should say a lot of my peers I know have been successful. I just didn't hire well over there and I just didn't pick the right people. I'm sure had I found the right people over there, it would have worked out really well, but I didn't. And that forced me to look to Latin America. I found a website called remoteco.com. It's a job board that connects U.S. businesses with Latin American talent. Found found two of my folks there, and um, yeah, and then it's it's worked out really well. The challenge with that kind of job board is that you get a ton of unqualified candidates, and it's a pretty big task to filter through all of the unqualified candidates to get to the highly qualified ones. And what constitutes highly qualified for you? So, it, for customer service, I'm just looking for excellent communicators, folks who have the accent is really important to me. I'm looking for people who have really good English and as little Latin accent as possible. And that was one of my fears in hiring anywhere remotely was when when somebody in a that's calling to rent storage at a, a rural storage facility in Colorado or New Mexico gets somebody on the line with a with a Filipino or a Latin accent, what are they going to think? And I, but I've been really surprised with the quality of English. You talk to, you talk to my operations manager and you can't tell that she's not, she, she sounds like she probably maybe lives in Miami. Like it's, it's incredible her accent and same with our employee that we just found in Mexico. She's got an, an incredible English. Her writing is amazing. So anyway, for customer service, I really actually any role, great communication skills. And then for the, for the ops manager, Role. I was looking for somebody that was very self-driven, had had ops experience. So the woman that I found actually, she had experience managing her own businesses in the past. So I knew that she was at a level that that she could take on what I needed. And I think a really important part of hiring is just being really clear with your expectations and make making absolutely certain that candidates are ready to perform at those expectations. So like for my ops manager. I was very clear with her that my goal in hiring her was to remove myself from the day-to-day. -day. And I explained to her the things that I was spending time on today that I expected to be able to offload. And that included things like making yourself available on the weekends if an emergency comes up. I don't want to be the, I didn't want to be the guy that got the call when there was a theft over the weekend and somebody needed to call the sheriff. 
And I've just been very clear with my expectations and, and got, got commitment from folks that I've hired to, to meet those expectations. In hindsight, if I were to go back to get the question, if you were to go back, what would you change? What would you do different? If I were to go back to sales, there's so many times that I turned down like a sales manager role. But now I wish I would have done it for a year just to mitigate, like just to like lubricate this transition from self-employed to business owner, because it's been a difficult transition for me to become like a CEO, a leader. Like I'm not good at hiring comma yet. I'm not good at leading comma yet. And it's something I'm actively working on and it's proving to be a more difficult skill set to learn than I anticipated. Yeah. But it's like really worth it. So my issue is like when it comes to task delegation, like that's relatively simple. But for me, like my struggles have been, what does winning look like? What does a great job look like? What does a good job look like? What's a mediocre job look like? How do you know that you're murdering it? Like that you're above and beyond every single week. That's been very difficult for me to articulate. And I even struggle with chat GPT, dude. Like even given chat GPT prompts, I'm like not that great at it. And it's fun for me to work through it, but it's a more difficult process than I think people portray it to be. It's a more difficult skill set to learn. Do you have any advice on that? I have never enjoyed managing people. <laughs> I was a, a leader yeah. for 16 years and I've been a top performing sales rep. So I'm like, I just operate at a really high level and I just assume that everyone else does, but that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. I can't say that I'm a great manager. Honestly, like for me now, my focus is finding really great people that don't need me to be a great manager. <laughs> okay. That's so, fair. I, I just recognize that's a weakness. But I think I have learned that I think the most important thing in leading anyone, because I do have to lead people, I, like, a, you know, I, I have people that are running this business that is my livelihood. I, I'm not just leaving them completely on their own. But the most important thing for me is that expectation setting and just being crystal clear with what you expect from someone and never leaving any room for interpretation for whether or not they're meeting those expectations. So when folks are meeting their expectations or my expectations, I make sure that they know that they're doing well. I give them, I give them praise and, and make sure that they know how appreciated they are. And when folks are off and they're not meeting expectations, I'm very clear. I try to be, I try to be kind in how I deliver feedback, but I think it's really important to be honest and not sugarcoat. And I think that's, it's a fault of mine. I worry a little bit too much about what people think of me. And so that leads to being worried about how people perceive you when you give them constructive. But also you don't want to be a dick. (laughs) Yeah. And I think there's a balance there. I think you can be direct without being a dick, but it's probably a learned skill. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Slow, slowly but surely. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. We're, uh, we're at the top of the hour here, man. Where can people find you? And if you want to give a plug for the new company, feel free. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Sultan of Storage. If you go to sultanofstorage.com, you'll find a couple of, of links there. And then, yeah, as I was explaining before, I'm bullish enough on the opportunity to match Latin American talent with uh, US businesses that I've partnered with a fellow named Eduardo Rodriguez, who has a business called Assisto.io. And I'm joining him in Assisto to to help build a, a recruiting agency that matches US businesses with Latin American talent. Like I've, I've, I've just seen how game-changing that has been for 
allowing me to up-level myself and work on my business rather than in in my business. And I want to help other businesses tap into the immense amount of, of talent that exists in Latin America. Thank you, brother. All right, sweet. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Go follow him at Sultan of Storage on Twitter and check out the website, check out the business. Baird, thanks for coming on, buddy. Thanks, Brian. Great chatting. With that, that has been Baird and Brian with the Action Academy Podcast signing off.